You are listening to the Follow series on 1 Peter from Holy Cross Presbyterian Church in Stanton, Virginia. 1 Peter is a letter written to Christians struggling to follow after Jesus in a world in which they increasingly see themselves as strangers. It is both instruction how and an encouragement to live in the world in relationships, vocations, communities, and the church out of an identity formed by the transforming and perfect work of Jesus Christ. All right, well, if you have your Bible with you, you can turn to the book of 1 Peter. Kids ages 3 to kindergarten can head down to Holy Cross Kids. We are in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning. While you find your spot there, either in your, if you don't have a Bible with you, the text is printed for you in your order of worship. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, there's one on the back table I'd love to give you. So you just go grab that. That'd be great. Okay? Let me remind us what we're doing. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he gave his followers a call to go into the world. Uh, it was a call to go into the world to make disciples, right? Make disciples, not converts, but disciples. In other words, to form people who would likewise, like they did, follow Jesus, not just claim him. And so to that end, because of that, we're taking this summer to look through the book of 1 Peter and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it means to follow him, uh, and we're doing that through the book of uh, of 1 Peter. But here's the thing though. We are rather we, we rather loathe in our culture uh, this fact, but it's true. Right after Jesus called his people to go and make disciples, he talked about not just making them but including them in a community. That they weren't just supposed to go do this on their own, that they was about being uh, brought into a people. The reason for that is that followers of Jesus, as Christians, are not meant for isolation, but for a community, a community that Jesus called the church, which means that following Jesus will by necessity mean following in the church. So that's what we're looking at this morning. If you have your place in First Peter or in your order of worship, as is our habit, I'd invite you to stand in honor of God's Word. We'll be reading chapter 2, verses 4 to 12. Friends, this is God's Word. As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I lay as in Zion a stone, a, co- a cornerstone, chosen and precious And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light once You were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. This is God's word given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? 
Father, as we come into this time, we ask that you would open our hearts, that we might hear you, that we may trust in you. Open our eyes that we may see you. Speak to us. Preach your gospel to us, Lord. Let the cr- Jesus and his cross come to the fore and let the one who speaks fall into the background because you are the only one we need to hear from this morning. And so, Lord, we ask that you would do these things for the sake of your great name. And in the name of Jesus, we pray it. Amen. Have a seat. I want to I want to jump right in this morning uh, because we have a lot to talk about. This text is packed full of stuff, um, but the reality is that as we do this, talking about the church today is difficult. It's difficult because on the one hand, we live in a culture that is radically individualized. Right? We 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 are a very individualistic culture. We don't want to talk about uh, communal anything. <laughs> Um, that, that seems to be something that, imp- that presses in on us and restricts us. Uh, so that's on the one hand. On the other hand, um, because of the place in which we live, we, we look on institutions with a great deal of suspicion. It doesn't really matter the institution. You name it, we look on it with suspicion. We suspect it of something, right? That said, this is a conversation we need to have. And so we'll be looking at this text in three ways. This, as always, is outline your bulletin. Okay, that's helpful for you. We're going to look at a new identity. We're going to look at a new manner. And then finally, we're going to look at a new community. Okay? Let's start with a new identity. Now, we need to say up front that if, if, as I was reading that, you were kind of getting lost in all of these allusions, all of these, like, random comments about priests and rocks and stones and spiritual houses, uh, don't worry. Those are biblical allusions that are probably unfamiliar to almost all of us, Right? But we need to keep in mind that Peter, as he's saying these things, is speaking them to a community, a community of Christians in multiple cities. This is a letter that would have been, uh, it was called a circular letter. It would have done the rounds, in other words. It would have done the rounds throughout um, what is now Turkey. They would have known it as Asia Minor. Um, it, this, these communities in all of these different cities um, were made up of both both uh, folks from Jewish backgrounds, folks from Greek backgrounds. They had many different things that they could identify with. But what Peter is trying to do in this section is help them realize a different identity than any of those things. But he does that first by pointing out the foundation. Look down at verses 4 to 8. He says this, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. All right, what's going on here? First off, when Peter says him, he's talking about Jesus. Like, that's the nearest reference in, in the last passage. Again, the first hearers of this, would have, they would have just, someone would have stood up and just read it to them, right? And they would have heard the whole thing and would have gotten the context. Our practice is we kind of break it down and go week by week, which means we're likely to forget what happened last week. Or if you weren't here, you didn't hear it anyway. But the him that he's talking about is Jesus. The stone stuff, that, that stuff that we kind of stumble over, no, no pun intended again. I'm having a, I'm on, ugh, this is a bad morning for that. Um, but the stone stuff that we kind of uh, have a hard time with, uh, that, that's from the Old Testament. There are three places in the Old Testament where this idea of a stone, the stone imagery comes into play. They are Psalm 118, Isaiah chapter 8, and Isaiah 28. And all three are quoted here in some way, shape, or form. Okay? All three are quoted here. Now, we can't go through the whys and hows of why they're quoted here and what's going on. I need to give you the short of how a first century Jew or a first century Christian would have understood these references. At the time in which Peter is writing, those coming out of a Jewish context would have understood this idea of stone dealing with two different images. 
the idea of a temple and the idea of a king or a messiah, okay? Remember, in, in the Old Testament, uh, a messiah was, was a king. <clears throat> and the logical question is why, right? Well, the answer is bound up in the story that the Bible tells. Because in that story, <clears throat> excuse me, humanity was created to follow after God, to, to be in dependent, loving relationship with him. But the problem is we betrayed him. We decided we wanted to be independent of him. We wanted to define reality on our own. That's what that whole thing in the first few chapters of Genesis is about, wanting the knowledge of good and evil. We wanted to be able to define things on our own apart from him, not rely on him for that. And so we betrayed him. We turned away from him. We wanted to see ourselves as equals with him, so we broke relationship with him. And our betrayal had consequences. In the scriptures, the word that they use for betrayal is sin, okay? We, we can call it that. Some of us will stumble over that as well. But it just means betraying God. Now, I realize that saying that, saying that the idea that we betrayed God is unpopular, saying the idea that, that betrayal of God actually has consequences is even more unpopular, right? I mean, most of us understand that if we're betrayed, there are consequences. But the idea that, like, wait a minute, but, but God, I don't know. I, I don't really want to see him as relational in the first place. I can actually betray him as a person. Secondly, I don't know if it's right for God to feel betrayed. You know, I mean, that's the way we look at things. Um, but the reality is, is that we have to understand that that's part of the story that the Scripture tells. According to that story, there are consequences. First and foremost, humanity came under guilt because we betrayed him. There's always guilt that comes with betrayals. We betrayed God then, we still do it daily today. The New Testament says that everyone has sinned. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. But not just guilt. Secondly, we entered into a state of, of, of slavery uh, to that independence, to the independence from God, a, a kind of corruption, uh, a corruption that you and I, look, listen, I don't feel like I really have to argue this all that much. I think we know it's there. It's the reason why uh, we, we can't ever, we always seem to do things that we don't understand. Why do I keep doing that? It's why lasting change just never seems to really happen. Why is that? Why can't I? It always just seems out of reach. So there's guilt, there's corruption, but lastly, there's something else, and that's where these images come in. Because of those first two things, guilt and corruption, we are also alienated from God. In other words, there's a relational break there. We were made for his presence, but now we're separated from that special presence. Now, this is where the rest of the story continues. Because right there, right at the point of our betrayal, God promised to make things right. He said, I'm, I'm going to heal this. I'm going to fix this. Even though we were the ones who messed it up. He was the one betrayed. He's the betrayed one. And he's looking at his betrayers and he's saying, I'll fix this. He treats us with grace and says that he will deal with our sin and restore things to what he intended. And as the story progresses, there are all these different facets to it. We could spend the next seven years talking all about it. But as this story progresses, um, two particular images come into focus as ways in which he's going to do this. And they, they end up centering around these two things, a temple and a king. The temple, because that's the place where God's special presence dwelt in the Old Testament. And the king, or the Messiah, because he is the one who would actually come and make things right. And that wasn't clear in Genesis 3, but as time goes on, God makes it more and more clear that it's going to be this king. Now, here's where this ties in. 
Because during Peter's day and during Jesus' day, and that'll become important in a minute, many folks began interpreting these stone passages to be talking about both images, both the temple that will be created and this person, this king. In fact, in Matthew 21, Jesus applies that one of these same passages to himself. This is about me. What do you think about that? Right? Jesus often claimed to be the king, but he also often claimed to be this new temple, the place where God's presence dwelt in the world. And P- Peter is saying here, he's saying, you have come to the living stone, the Messiah, Jesus. What Peter's doing is claiming that Jesus is the agent through whom God is answering his promises. Jesus is the one through whom God is dealing with the problems of sin and alienation from him. But here's the rub. That answer is not accepted by everyone, right? You know this, I know this, and Peter knows this. The reason is because the answer isn't just to remove guilt. It's not as if uh, God sent Jesus just so that we could all get kind of the get-out-of-jail-free card, right? We have our little orange card and, and we're fine uh, and we get to pass go again. It's, it's to re- reestablish a dependent relationship because in Jesus... God came and lived the sinless life that you and I couldn't. Lived a life free of betrayal. But then he took our guilt, the guilt for our sin, and he died for it on the cross. So that if we placed our faith in him, his death for sin could become our death for sin. His sinless life becomes our sinless life. And this was all, not for a get-out-of-jail-free card, but so that we could be restored to the dependent, loving life with God that we were made for. But doing that means a couple of things. It means, first and foremost, that we've got to admit things are worse than we might have originally believed, right? Bad enough so that we can't fix them? As a matter of fact, that's kind of an oxymoron, right? How do you independently fix your independence problem? You can't. Somebody else has to come in and do it. And that's what God did. It means that our only hope is trusting in Jesus. And so, in this way, he became not just the cornerstone to God's answer to our problem, but also a stone that those who want to hold on to the mirage, that they can make things right with just being good enough, just being uh, loving enough, or better, just believing enough that God really doesn't care about what we do, becomes a stone that those folks trip over. And that leads us to what Peter says about Christians. Look down at verse 5. He says this, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Then later in verses 9 to 10, he continues uh, by referencing Exodus 19, saying that Christians are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. All right, what's going on? Basically this. Okay, stay with me if you can. Uh, Jesus is the living stone and the foundation. But the foundation of what? Remember that those passages were about Messiah. Certainly they've been understood this is about Messiah, but it's also about a temple. It's about a temple. And in the Old Testament, like I said before, the temple was the place where God's special presence dwelt. We don't understand this because it's been so long since that's been a reality for us. We have so much cultural distance. But remember this. When humanity was in the garden, God walked with us in the cool of the day. One of the horrors of, of 
the consequences of our betrayal was exile from that, where you and I are now in this land of thorns and thistles. And I know as well as you do, and many of us have been taught all of these uh, great little words that, about God that begin with omni, right? I, I know that God is everywhere. We get that. But God's special, His relational presence, His special presence was there. And so when God's people, le- when, when humanity left the garden, it was the weight of their leaving was not just, okay, now I gotta, I'm going to sweat when I work and there's going to be pain in, in relationships and all this stuff. It was and God won't walk with me in the cool of the day anymore. Things aren't right. And so, of course, when God calls his people out of Egypt, redeems them, one of the first things he does is he tells them, now that you're out, I need you to build this big tent. And it's going to be really ornate. And then they do that, and in the midst of this, he comes into it. They call it the tabernacle. And his presence is there, like it is, it is nowhere else. It's there. And then when God's people finally conquered the land, took it over, and, and the kingship is established, then a, then a temple is built for him. And again, his presence come and, comes and dwells there in a mighty way. It's, it's a place, it, it is the place in the Old Testament where heaven and earth meet. But the goal was never just to leave it there. The goal is for that presence to be restored to all of creation. Right? And so in the Old Testament, again, this temple is that place where God's presence dwells, but it, it was like a foretaste of what was coming when God made things right and restored us to himself. And what Peter is saying is that Christians, you, you and I, if, you, if you're a believer in Jesus, are being built into that, into that reality. Not you individually, right? Corporately, we are being built into a temple the place where God's presence dwells. In other words, the church, people, not a building, the church has become, through the work of Jesus, the place where God's presence is in the world. And that's what he means when he says you're being built into a spiritual house. In, in the first century, especially if you were coming out of, of a Jewish mindset, the only thing that was a spiritual house was that place in Jerusalem, that temple. And so when Peter says, you're a spiritual house, saying, you're the temple now. God's presence is known in the world through the church as a taste of what is coming when God finally and fully makes all things right. Now, two more things on this. First, this idea of priesthood. Again, we, don't, we, have, we have so much cultural distance between what that actually means for us. Uh, priests are primarily dudes with black shirts and collars, right? That, that's, that's not what is going on here. A priest in the Old Testament... In the Old Testament, a priest is someone who reconciles two parties. Okay? If you and your neighbor had a problem, sinned against, one of you sinned against the other, more than likely you both sinned against each other, because that's the way relationships work, right? You go to the priest in, in Jerusalem, and there's a sacrifice and all this stuff, and afterwards you have this fellowship meal, which says everything's right now. Okay? The priest takes his hands and he reaches out between two alienated parties and brings them together. It's the same thing he's doing between humanity and God. Two alienated parties. He's standing as a mediator between them and bringing them together. So what, what is Peter talking about when he says that Christians are a kingdom of priests? Well, it's just that. That Christians are those who are supposed to be reaching out their hands between two alienated parties. 
the God who was betrayed and the world that's betrayed him and seeking to see them restored. Secondly, notice how all this works. It's by grace. It's by grace. Verses 9 and 10, it's all by grace. And we rail against this. We want our status to be based on our efforts. I did this. I accomplished this. See how good I am. But Peter won't allow it. He won't allow it. And for good reason. If it is because of our accomplishment, we aren't dependent at all. He says instead, we were once in darkness, but now he's brought us into light. We were once not a people, but now we are a people. We once were without mercy, but now we have received mercy. This new identity that we have, that is formed by Jesus and by his work, is purely by God's grace. All right, now that's great, but it isn't the end, because there's a founda- that, though there's a foundation uh, to being part of this community, there's also a manner of life. Look down at verse 11. Peter says this, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. All right, don't check out on me yet, okay? Because I know that when we hear the flesh and passions, most of are like, yep, here it goes. Church is always trying to kill my fun. Like, you know, those two things we seem to go together. But here's the thing. Um, when the scriptures speak about the flesh, it doesn't mean the body. It doesn't mean the body as opposed to your, your spiritual side, right? As if the body's bad, the soul is good. Okay, that is not Christian. That is something, that is, a, that is a, um, an aberration on Christianity called Gnosticism. That is not Christian, okay? Uh, what it means, however, is, is something uh, different. It means primarily the natural way of being uh, of a human since sin entered the world. In other words, it is kind of what comes naturally to us now that we are broken. Now that, now that we have that corruption. But the word passion also comes in there, right? He says that as well. Passions of the flesh. Now, uh, we, we hear passion, and quite frankly, we just, we, we hear sexuality, Right? So when we put together passions of the flesh, that's all we end up thinking about. Clearly, this is talking about sexuality. Not at all. Passions in in the New Testament, again, is not simply... uh, I mean, certainly, there's sexuality is part of that, but what it means is drives, desires, um, incessant lusts, like things that we must have, and so we go take something that will make things right for us, and so we go grab it. Now, sure, sexual immorality is part of this, but so also is greed and gossip. And so also is religious activism in which we seek to commend ourselves to God. That is also a passion of the flesh. What Peter is talking about is the independent lifestyle marked by our sin which means that that can look very clean and it can look like a train wreck. It can look like, like I keep my nose clean, but I do it very independently. I really, I'm trying to do this so that God will like me. Okay? Passion of the flesh. It can also look like, um, you, you know, add in your, your stereotypical train wreck life over here. They're the same. And Peter says they are the same. 
And Peter's message here is that though these things promise life to us, in reality, they are waging war against who we are. Now, let me give you an example, because I'm not sure any of us actually believe that. So, I'll be a little transparent, right? Long before I had a relationship with Jesus, I had a relationship with pictures that we call pornography. It was something that continued well into my Christian life and even into my marriage. And the reason it continued, even after I became a Christian and began to learn that it wasn't honoring to Christ, was that it had become how I learned to deal with life. What I did when I had a bad day, when I was under stress, when I felt rejection, when I felt disappointment. or What, what would happen is that my immediate desire, the thing that railed up in me was, go find a computer. Right? It was part of my old way of life. Now, what I didn't realize, because I thought, though I knew something different, what, what it always was convincing to me was that this will make things better. Or at the very least, will help to distract me for a little bit because things are just rough. What I didn't realize is that those things were actually waging war against me. They were killing me. Here's what I mean. It messed up my ability to have intimate relationships with others. I didn't really know what intimacy was. Life sharing was off limits. Why? Because I had an addiction and I went to it. Right? That was my friend. Uh, It certainly messed up the way I viewed women, the way I viewed sexuality. And of course, it drove a wedge between me and God. Uh, quite, quite frankly, it just it wasn't what I was made for. But it's what I kept running to. Now, it might not be that for you, though my guess is that for many of us in this room it is, men and women. For you, it might be something else. Uh, it's just an example. But the reality is, is that what we, many of us, think brings us life is actually slowly killing us. And I don't mean like it's actually maybe one day, I mean, maybe for some of us, maybe it will one day actually kill us. There are things that we can get hooked on that will do that. But I mean, just slowly dehumanizing us, making us less than what we were made to be day after day, minute after minute. What we think will bring us life, if it isn't faith in Christ, actually works to harm us, even if we don't initially realize it. And as those who draw our citizenship from the new world that Jesus is bringing, in other words, as sojourners and exiles, that's what, that's what Peter means, if you haven't been here the last few weeks. He's talking about Christians as those who draw their citizenship from another country, in other words, not from the empire, not from Rome, not from wherever you live currently, but from the world that Christ is bringing. And as citizens of that world, we live according to that world, even though we sojourn through this one. And here's why. Look down at verse 12. Peter says this, Keep your manner of life among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. All right, let me keep this brief because we could, you could do a whole sermon on that. Peter is envisioning a time... I know this may be very difficult for all of us to believe. Peter is envisioning a time in which it will be proclaimed that Christians are evil simply because they are Christians. It is something that happened, was happening during his day. And it is something that will happen again and happens periodically throughout history. And what Peter is asking is that the church actually act in such a way that even when accused of that, that our manner of life would actually silence such things. Now, here's what we need to point out. Peter says, when, not if, He says, when. 
Some of us in this room want to believe that so long as we keep our heads down, don't rock the boat, that we'll actually, the culture will actually think we're cool. They won't. Peter is saying that if you are living as followers of Jesus, you will be called an evildoer. The call is then to not give them reason to be right. Okay? We are a city within a city. We are a community within a community. And as such, our communal life must reflect the one around whom that life revolves, Jesus. And Jesus, it is clear, was killed for being an evildoer, even though he did nothing but love others. All right? Now, I want to bring this home in three ways this morning. The first is dealing with community. Listen to me, because what I'm about to say is not very popular. Okay? Peter seems clear here. Christians are supposed to be part of a community. A stone is not a house. It's a stone. Right? Christians are stones meant to be put with other stones to be built into a spiritual house, a temple for God's presence to dwell in. You and I want to think that we can be Christians, that we can be okay with Jesus, but not be okay with the church. Right? But here's the thing. The New Testament has this metaphor for the church, calls it the bride of Christ. Now, if you were to come to me and you were to say, Rick, man, I dig hanging out with you. You are great. I would love to hang out with you more, but can we not be around your wife? Because, man, I cannot stand her. Can I tell you something? You and I are going to have words. We are not okay. We are not going to be okay. Because that is my wife. That is the one that I love. And if you have a problem with her, you have a problem with me. Does that mean that I think she's perfect? No. Are you sick? Like, no. Of course not. I'm not blind, but I love her with an insanely strong love. Jesus loves his church with an insanely strong love. Don't think you can care for him and not for her. We are rescued from our sin to be part of a people, a new people that God is creating, and you cannot be a people on your own. I am not saying that you, it's not possible to be a Christian and not be part of a church, but I am saying that if you haven't committed yourself to a local church, I believe you are walking in rebellion towards God and the clear teaching of the New Testament. Okay? But secondly, let me look, talk about newness. Because you see, the thing about the church is that it isn't just a social group or a support group. I know many of us want it to be that. To be this open and kind of inclusive group that kind of brings you in, draws you in, no matter what, no matter what is going on, no matter who you claim to follow, right? It's like, well, the church is this place. It is that kind of place. You can come in here and you can be here on a Sunday morning, no questions asked. And if you don't believe in Jesus, trust me, I want you here. Because the only place to really investigate the claims of Christ is among the people of God. Um, come and try it on for a little bit, see what you think. However, the church is a community ordered around Jesus that draws its identity from Jesus. Again, when Peter says to abstain from passions of the flesh, what he is talking about is not be good so that God will like you. What he is saying is not um, 
do this and then God will rescue you. What he's saying is, live into what God has made you to be. Our identity is from Jesus, not whatever characterized us before we were Christians. Let me be clear. Our identity is not from our morality, from our success, our ethnicity, our socioeconomic status, our education, or our sexuality. If you have trusted in Jesus, if you are a Christian, your identity is to stem solely from his work of grace. But here's the thing. Peter is making it clear. The community that Christ is building is a community of repentance. We are made new to be new. See, we often see it as everyone sins and the church is all about grace. So, huh, that's true. Both of those things are true, right? Everyone sins. And the church is all about grace. And that is the foundation that Peter lays here. But that grace moves us. You don't move from your old patterns to be rescued by God. You move from your old patterns because you have been rescued by God. The imperative always stems from the indicative. You remember me saying that a couple weeks ago? What we ought to do must come from who we are, but it must come... (laughs) You tracking with me? Who we are will always drive what we do, but it must drive what we do. Okay? Listen, half the reason that the church has lost its credibility in this culture is because it hasn't looked any different than the world. We proclaim Christ has come and rescued us from our sin, and then we act self-righteous as if we never had them, and then we go and do the same thing everyone else does. Listen to me. There are a ton of steeples in this city. A ton of them. And most of them are in congregations that are slowly in the decline and phasing out. Why? Because most of those churches aren't offering them anything they can't get at the Kiwanis Club. So why go to church? Why get up on Sunday? What's the point? I can get the same thing from Rotary. I can get the same thing just from my neighborhood if I'm extroverted enough, right? Which wouldn't be me, but some of you. The church must be a community seeking to live into our identity and not letting the world's categories define us, okay? Lastly, stay with me. I know I'm going a little long. Lastly is purpose. What is the church for? What is the church for? Talk about what it is. Talk about our identity and all that, how it's formed, but what is it for? This is where the temple and priest language come in. Remember what I said the priests do? They're agents of reconciliation, and that's what Christians are to be. Let me, let me be clear on that. Holy Cross Church is a priestly community, which means we are to be agents of reconciliation between God and our city, our neighbors, our co-workers. Okay, what does that mean? What it doesn't mean is that you and I make things right between God and them. Good luck with that, okay? We can't do it. We couldn't make things right between us and God. Better yet, somebody else and God. What it does mean is that we are to be those who seek to bring to our friends and neighbors the only hope for their reconciliation. The same thing that brought us reconciliation, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't go to people and say, clean up your act and be good like me. Because we're not. We're not. We come and say, find mercy as we have found mercy. 
through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Everything we do here at this church has an eye to that. We are here so that more and more people might come to know Christ and be reconciled to God. That is the only reason why we are here. Remember, though, that this is what Peter says we all are. Right? He's not talking to um, church officers, church staff, whatever. They didn't have church staff. Uh, He's talking to the Christians. If you're not in a place where you think that you can do that, where you can share the gospel with others, we want to help you get there, but we need to get there. Holy Cross exists to see this city flourish. And that can only happen as more and more people come to know Christ. And then those redeemed lives bring the kingdom of God to bear on this city. We are called to be agents, the agents through which that happens. Multiplying not only disciples, but ultimately, if you're familiar with our vision, ultimately congregations of disciples. To proclaim the excellencies of the one who brought us from darkness into light. Would you pray with me? Lord, we ask for your grace because the reality is that we as a church are far from perfect. We far from embody these things as well as we'd like to be, to be able to do. And so we need your grace. Others of us, Lord, we're, we're here in this place and uh, some of us aren't followers of Jesus at all. So most of this stuff just sounded crazy. Others of us are still trying to hope that we can get by in this Christian life thing on our own. I pray, Lord, that you would draw all of us closer and closer to your church because that is where we were made to flourish with others to help uh, create boundary lines for us in pleasant places, to encourage us into relationship with you more and more and as a place where we can also be a blessing to others. Jesus, thank you that you have called us from darkness into light. May we always see that as not just a blessing, but a vocation to see light shine in this world. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. If you stand with me, please, you find written in your bulletins our confession of faith. This morning we heard from God's word reminding us of what it means to follow after Him as His people.